The first thing I'd like to do tonight is express my appreciation for the new hall. How many of you practiced in this place before this year? Anybody miss the red carpet? (laughs) A little bit. A little sentimental value to an old red carpet that used to cover the platform. But on the whole, isn't this a happier place to be? You know, a place is a little on the dark side. So really appreciating the bright colors and light tones of brightness here. I want to talk tonight about mindfulness of breathing. And in some ways, this is a rather fundamental talk and really just intended to sort of remind us all of what we're doing at this stage in the retreat. First day of a retreat uh, is always difficult if you just arrived yesterday. It's a little bit like going back to the gym after Christmas and New Year's holidays and finding out that you put on too much weight and you didn't keep the muscle tone up. So rediscovering the muscles is always a little bit achy and a little bit tiring. For those of you who have been here for two weeks or four weeks, you've been going through the transition of all of us coming in from the outside with all our kind of manic, worldly energy, and I appreciate your patience with us all. And you may have found it interesting to start over with the instructions this morning. I don't know if if you are or not, but it wouldn't be a bad idea because going through the instructions again will give you a little bit of a sense of how you've changed or what you've learned or how you might be relating to them differently than you did two weeks ago or four weeks ago. So I encourage you to, to try it if you have an inclination. Start with the whole sequence again if that feels appropriate and see how it feels this time around. We started the instructions today with paying attention to breathing. And in some ways, this is kind of an arbitrary choice. I hope you all know that. We could really have started anywhere or nowhere. Technique is a very subjective uh, preference in the whole field of meditation. Some very well-established meditation traditions put very little emphasis on technique. I remember a Zen session that I went to sit, I think it was 1978, it was the first year I was on staff, and actually Carol and Steve and I all went together to New York to sit with a well-known Zen teacher named Sasaki Roshi. Sasaki Roshi is a very, very strong uh, spirit in any world. Um, He's Leonard Cohen's teacher. And if you happen to see the new film about Leonard Cohen, there's a little scene of Cohen in in the film with Sasaki, um, who I think was used as the model for Yoda in the Star Wars films. (laughs) You know, that kind of face, that timeless kind of face. And Sasaki Roshi is in the tradition of Rinzai Zen, which is the tradition that tends to hit you if you move in the meditation hall. One of the reasons I didn't stay too long in that tradition It's also a tradition that puts very little emphasis on meditation technique. So as we started the retreat, we were all given a koan, a baby koan suitable for Westerners, but a a Zen riddle that we were supposed to uh, present our answer to four times a day to the teacher, to the Roshi, in individual meetings. And if you didn't have a good answer, he'd say things like, stupid answer, ring the bell, and that meant you were dismissed. (laughs) So he wasn't one of these kind of uh, warm and fuzzy, cuddly types like like we tend to be. So it was was a little bit uh, intimidating for for some of us. And at one point, uh, we'd been given very basic instructions about feeling the breath in the abdomen, and then we'd been given our koan. That was about the extent of the instruction. So in one question period, somebody raised their hand and said, What should we do while we sit? Should we follow our breath or should we reflect on our koan? And Roshi's answer was very Zen. He said, you can do whatever you want. And that was the end of the answer. You can do whatever you want. So, you know, that's really true here too. You can do whatever you want and I know many of you will. Um, (laughs) regardless of what we want you to do or ask you to do. And we realize that's out of our control. 
You will do what you want. But we do feel that there is a value in technique, and we want to share with you some aspects that we found helpful in working with techniques in meditation. And hopefully over the time you're here, whether it's nine weeks, seven weeks, or five weeks, you'll have a chance to play with them enough to get a feeling for what works for you. That's the point of technique, is to find what tools, what choices, what directions to aim the attention in best harmonize with your body and mind. Because the body and mind are always changing, different ones will work better at different times. But that's why it's good if you have a few, then you'll know which one fits each condition. When the mind is agitated, it might be one choice. When the mind is calm, it might be another. Uh, When the body is tight, it might be one. When the body is easy, it might be another. So we'd like to offer a range of practices, and we begin with the breath, I think because it's where the Buddha really began. His meditation instructions tend to to start with the breath. And I'd say looking over the whole field of Buddhist meditation practice, 2,500 years in all the different traditions that it's gone to, the breath is probably the most used single technique. But there's nothing sacred about it. I hope you really appreciate that. It is not the sacred object of meditation. It is not the only appropriate place to put your attention. It's a skillful place for many people, and for some people it's a really unskillful place. If you find it difficult to relate with the breath, please talk with your teacher in the interview and see if you can work together to find an alternate focus that better harmonizes where you're at. So there's no obligation for anybody to be with the breath And please don't think that this is in some way the best technique. It's just one technique, and it's the one that we tend to start with. But really more important than the object of the breath, I hope you know, is the quality of mindfulness. Mindfulness can be applied to any part of your experience. So it can be applied to any of the sensations at the five physical sense doors, any experience of sight, Sound, smell, taste, and touch, those are bases for mindfulness, can be applied to any phenomenon that you recognize at the mind door, to thoughts, to emotions, to intentions, to perceptions, to feeling tones, volition. Any of those are excellent grounds for mindfulness. We tend to start with the breath, but mindfulness is the primary thing. So as Steve mentioned today, If in being with the breath you find the attention drawn somewhere else and you notice that, mindfulness is still happening. And that's really the key. I find it interesting that um, after about 30 or so years of coming into this country, the practice of mindfulness is starting to become recognized outside the kind of fringe group that you and I represent. You know, we're kind of an oddball assortment of people who would come into a place like this and be in silence for five weeks or nine weeks. Mainstream America isn't going to do this anytime soon. Nonetheless, mindfulness is starting to be really recognized and appreciated in the mainstream. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction has made a big impact, and that has sort of brought it to the attention of the scientific community who are now starting to do uh, research in experiments involving mindfulness that are showing some some pretty amazing results. But I don't really want to go into those because I think you know from your own experience the benefits of mindfulness. One group uh, that I know of in Los Angeles is part of a $25 million funding effort. And there's a group within that dedicated to the study of mindfulness in a kind of research-oriented way. So I think this is great. I think this will validate the beneficial effects of what we do and take it further into the mainstream as yoga has gone into the mainstream after years of being considered sort of a fringe and cult pursuit. So as mindfulness becomes more mainstream, I wonder, I want to ask you a question. 
Have you ever tried to define it for yourself? If a friend came and asked you, okay, you do this practice called mindfulness, I'm reading about this, what what do you mean by mindfulness? Would you have a very would you have a clear response for them? Does anybody want to hazard a I probably wouldn't either. Sometimes it's described as bare attention, just the sense that we connect with our experience. And, you know, around mindfulness, there's something to do with the present moment, right? It's important that mindfulness have to do with an experience in this moment. And bare attention represents that connecting of our attention to something that's happening, and we don't add anything to it. That's what the bear part means. So we don't analyze it, we don't judge it, we don't compare it, we don't evaluate it, we don't wish it were something else. I mean, we may, but that's not mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't add to the experience, and that's why it's called bear. But I don't think that that completely sums up what mindfulness is, for me anyway, because as far as I can tell, dogs have bear attention. Most of the time, when I look at a dog, they're just with what is. When they sleep, they dream, and then you see their, you know, their paws going. But when they're alert, they're very happily, usually, with what is. Are they being mindful? Is a dog mindful? A dog is in the present moment. They're connecting to some sense experience. Are they being mindful? Is a baby mindful? A baby's also very connected to the present moment. It's a baby mindful. All right. For you to consider this question, I want to read some uh, sections from the Satipatthana Sutta. This is, in a way, the, the Bible in our tradition for how to practice mindfulness. It is the discourse on the foundations or the establishment, you might say of mindfulness. It's found in a book called the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the uh, primary texts that came down to us in the language of Pali, a language from ancient India, and has been translated into many languages around the world, and now there's a very, very good translation in English, and that's the one that I'll just quote some sections from. The Satipatthana Sutta is directed to a practitioner, In the way that the Buddha delivered it, he used the term bhikkhu because mostly he was speaking to uh, male monastics in his day. But the term bhikkhu, according to the commentaries in, in this context, means anybody who's committed to the practice. So you don't have to be a monastic, you don't have to be a male. It means all of us who are seriously engaged in mindfulness practice. So this is how we are instructed by the Buddha to practice. These are just a few examples. There's a lot more in the whole sutta, but these are a few representative examples. Breathing in, the practitioner understands I am breathing out. Oh, sorry, understand. That would be wrong mindfulness. Understands I am breathing in. Breathing out, she understands I am breathing out. Or, feeling a painful feeling, he understands I am feeling a painful feeling. Or, feeling a pleasant feeling, she understands I am feeling a pleasant feeling. She understands the mind affected by lust as the mind affected by lust, and the mind unaffected by lust as the mind unaffected by lust. Or, there being aversion in him, he understands there is aversion in me. Or, there being no aversion, He understands there is no aversion in me. So these are the Buddha's own descriptions of how to practice mindfulness. What common word sort of stands out to you from that selection? Knows or aware or understands. Understands is actually the way that Bhikkhu Bodhi translated uh, the term from Pali. Understands. So I would say that a good working definition of mindfulness is understanding what our present experience is. 
It doesn't have to be our total present experience. It just means understanding that experience where our attention is directed. Understanding what's happening in the present moment where our attention is landing. That's mindfulness. I like this word understands because there's some quality in there that I think is important to to notice, and that is an intelligence. Understanding is, is the part, I would say, that's missing from the dog's experience. It's the part that's missing from the baby's experience. They don't quite have that, you could almost call it a reflective ability in consciousness to take note of what the present experience is. There's almost this sense of stepping back a little bit from the immediate engagement and also understanding what's happening to us. This quality of intelligence is a really important piece of mindfulness because it is the opening of wisdom. It's through our mindful relationship to our experience that the wisdom door opens up to us. Wisdom is the word we usually use to translate the Pali term panya, an important uh, component of the Eightfold Path. And they are so related, these two qualities of mindfulness and wisdom, that one of my teachers from Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, seldom spoke about them separately. But he would use the combined term satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. And he would talk about this as the natural functioning of our being. When we are present and we pay attention, our mind naturally engages with our experience from this quality of mindfulness and understanding. It comes forth naturally if we let it. This is really what we're training in, this quality of mindfulness with understanding or wisdom. So, then let's back up one more step. This is uh, what mindfulness is. Why do we do it? Why on earth would you put yourself in this situation for nine weeks or whatever? I'm sure you've asked yourself this more than once. This is an arduous practice. I really appreciate working with people in long retreat because I know each one of you has a tremendous amount of commitment, tremendous amount of faith in order to undertake this kind of uh, activity. It's a challenge every, every day, sometimes many, many times every hour. This is a challenge. Why do we do it? What is it about mindfulness? There's something about a wisdom of staying in the present moment that I think is, is an important part of it. There was a cartoon in The New Yorker, it was a few months ago, that really illustrated our human, our human condition and so, said something about the nature of, of desires. The cartoon was in three, three panels. And the first panel was of a man at work. And he was sitting in front of his computer. He was working away uh, on the keyboard in front of the screen. But over his head, there was this little thought balloon which had an image of him out on the golf course playing golf. Next panel, same guy out on the golf course striking a ball off the driving range. But over his head was an image of himself at home making love to his partner. Third panel, can you guess? <laughs> Same guy at home making love to his partner, thinking about his PC at work. This is kind of the nature of samsaric mind. Wherever we are, we can't be entirely because the mind is running on to somewhere else. Desire is taking our thoughts somewhere else. And that kind of life doesn't really have the possibility of a deep satisfaction. The life where we're always somewhere else. As the Dalai Lama expressed it, the present moment is the only place that we can feel love. 
So the present moment is an important piece of the puzzle. But there's another uh, aspect to it also, which is that this, co- this property of mindfulness as the channel for wisdom begins to interact with our experience in a way that wakes us up. As we start to connect with the facets of our, of our human experience, all the experiences of the body and of the mind, the outside world and the inside world, mindfulness looking on those things with the eye of understanding starts to make some sense of life. This is really the unfolding of wisdom. I want to talk more about it a little later, exactly how that comes about and how it develops. But just to say that the wisdom piece of mindfulness is the one that ultimately gives the greatest uh, satisfaction through the uh, development of freedom. So I want to talk a little bit technically for a few minutes. I'll, I'll talk about this in relation to the breath, but I hope you'll see the connection with any other focus that uh, you may experience. I want to talk about two words that are really helpful in understanding how meditation practice functions. And these two words are connecting and sustaining. They're the English translation of two Pali words, which are vitaka and vichara. They're, you might say, the beginnings of concentration. We'll talk more about concentration later, but concentration is the settled quality of mind that lets us start to feel some stability, some calm, some steadiness with our attention. As we practice meditation with the breath, notice that what you, what you do when you're uh, being properly mindful is that you connect your attention to the breath and then you sustain the attention there for a short period of time. And that's the meaning of these Pali words. First, we choose to connect the attention to the sensations of the breath, and then we let the attention rest there for a little bit of time. This little bit of time is important because if you have the sense that you should last the whole hour, you'll get really tight. So don't try to sustain for very long. The recommended time is half a breath. Don't try to sustain that connection for more than half a breath. So we connect with the breath as we feel the in-breath coming. We let the attention stay there for half a breath, and then we kind of let go. When the out-breath begins, we connect again, and we sustain for just that length of time. I think this is realistic for us. I think if, we have, if you have in mind I should sustain for 10 breaths even, you can get really tight and frustrated and discouraged. If you have in mind I only have to sustain for half a breath, I think you can do it. I think I can do it. I think this is a helpful way to gauge our, uh, our effort. Even so, we might get tight because we miss a breath or two or three or five minutes or ten minutes. I mean, if you're here starting a retreat, I would suspect that most of you have been gone for 10 minutes at a time, maybe 20 minutes at a time today, without connecting to the present. And that happens on early days of retreat. Don't, Don't be discouraged. Because we feel a little judgment about that, sometimes we get tight. Oh, I can't miss this breath. But does the tightness actually help us stay connected? Not so well. Other times we might be so relaxed, we'll say, whatever happens, happens. This is kind of the the hippie approach to meditation. I'll just sit back, man, and whatever happens, I'm cool with that. And that's not so satisfying either because a whole period can go by and we haven't really connected with anything. So we want to find that quality of effort that's somewhere in between. And this is really what's meant by the balance of effort. A mind that's firm enough that it can really make a good connection with our focus, let's say the breath, but not so tight that it squeezes the life out of it. 
An analogy that one of our teachers used was trying to pick up a baked potato with a fork. Let's say you have half of a baked potato, a small potato, and you'd like to pick it up and put it in your mouth. So notice the quality of effort with which the fork hits the potato. If you hit the potato too hard, what happens? Breaks up, doesn't it? And you can't pick anything up. But if you hit it too soft, the fork doesn't go in, and you also can't pick it up. So you have to press the fork in with just the right amount of force. Then it picks up the potato and you can eat it. So similarly connecting to any meditation uh, subject like the breath, find where that appropriate balance is for you of effort. It can change moment by moment, but keep trying until you find it. And then this is really a key to something I think Steve or Carol mentioned last night about right attitude. You want an attitude of mind in your practice that's not too aggressive, not too gaining or striving, as that leads to being too tight. But you also want an attitude that's not too laid back or too passive, because that will lead to you being out of touch. So you want to find the place that's firm but not too hard and connect with the breath in that way. Remember that the, the point of the meditation is to be present, to be mindful in as many moments as you can. But in a lot of ways, that's not up to our control. So be really patient with yourself in those periods when mindfulness just doesn't happen. It's not always up to us. A lot of times, it's not our choice that we're in, away in thought for a long time. It's just what happens. Not, uh, not under our control, so not right for us to blame ourselves or judge ourselves for that. And remember that you can always just start over. When you've been at, come to the end of one of those long periods, tempting to blame ourselves, that doesn't help so much. Remember you can just begin again. Every moment is a new opportunity. You don't have to go back and figure out what you thought about. You don't have to resolve the train of thinking. You can just let it go. You don't have to excuse yourself or even forgive yourself. You say, oh, here again. And we start anew. You can be grateful for that. Now, the development of mindfulness leads in two directions, which I'm sure you've heard often. The Pali terms are samatha and vipassana. You could say these are the two big streams of the benefits of our practice. In English, these are translated as calm and insight. Calm and insight. So samatha basically means calm. Vipassana we usually translate as insight. Literal meaning is more like seeing clearly, seeing things the way they are. Now, over the 2,500 years that these teachings have been around, there has been a lot of comment on these two streams of the practice. And uh, different people have said, oh, if you want to develop samatha or calm, these are the practices you should do. And if you want to develop vipassana or insight, these are the practices you should do. So over time, there's been this uh, division of certain practices that are considered Uh, right for developing calm or samatha and others that are right for developing insight or vipassana. And some teachers will tell you, oh no, you're doing a samatha practice now, you know, don't go looking for insight. Or you're doing an insight practice now, don't worry about samatha. As I read the Buddha's teachings, he never talked in this kind of separated way. But rather, as I read the teachings, He said, when you practice mindfulness, you will develop in both samatha and vipassana. They both really support one another. It is true that you can take an approach that emphasizes one or the other, but here in this course, most of us will be developing both. So we'll make our instructions on the assumption that 
you're interested in both calm and insight. But it is very interesting to meet people who've developed a lot of calm because it's hard to tell them from fully enlightened beings. It's an interesting point about the development of calm. One of the teachers I got to spend some time with was Deepama. And I'm sure many of you uh, have heard of her. There's a wonderful book about her written by Amy Schmidt, who is a resident teacher here for many years. I'd say of all the Dharma books in the last 10 years, this is one of the most um, immediately happy-making Dharma books. And especially for women. That women who read the Deepama book tend to really connect with her as a kind of living teaching figure, even though she died a number of years ago. So I highly recommend, uh, especially for the women, you check out uh, the book called Deepama. Deepama was a very, very accomplished yogi who had had a lot of deep insight and a lot of deep stillness, a lot of deep uh, samatha. Uh, Just to give you an idea of what her stillness or concentration was like, She went to her first meditation retreat and she'd been practicing for about a day when she was supposed to go for an interview with her teacher. And as she was walking uh, toward her teacher, she found she couldn't lift her left foot off the ground. Something just stopped her. And she wasn't sure what had happened. So she just stood there for a few minutes. Oh, can't move. Guess I'm supposed to be here. She didn't fight. And then after a few minutes of still not being able to move, she looked down and a dog had bit her on the ankle, closed his teeth around her ankle, and that's why she couldn't move. She didn't even really feel it, except as kind of a weight. That's how strong her mind was at that point. So spending time with Deepama was was always amazing because her mind never seemed to move. And I couldn't tell if that was because she was so highly enlightened or because she had developed calm to such a high degree. Another uh, person that reminds me of that is a teacher from Thailand named Ajahn Jumnian. Ajahn Jumnian has a monastery in the south of Thailand near the town of Krabi. He's about uh, in his late 60s now and has been a monk since he was very young. Has done a lot of metta practice, so he has a very... Uh, joyful disposition, and a lot of strong concentration. He has psychic powers also that arose out of the concentration. One of the things he said a few years ago is that he hasn't had any anger in 25 years. And it's not because he's isolated living in a cave. He runs a large monastery with a lot of people coming and going, and I'm sure a lot of headaches. He said he hasn't had any anger. Now, is that because he's so realized or is that because of the steadiness of his mind from concentration? I don't know. Another teacher who really impresses me was here at the Forest Refuge this summer. His name is Paok Sayadaw. He's a Burmese teacher. He teaches a very complete and complex system of meditation, the first part of which is very... Um, seriously oriented to developing samatha. He wants you to develop what are called the four jhanas or absorption states to very, very high levels of concentration. And he himself is clearly a master of those states, those concentrated states. Then he instructs you how to use that concentrated mind to turn to insight to see the nature of reality very clearly. In himself, he is a very impressive being. I find him very impressive. I've met a, wi- a fairly wide range of teachers uh, in Buddhist circles, and of all the ones I've met, Paok Sayadaw reminds me of the stories of the Buddha more than anybody else I've met. His mind seems always unflappable. I've never seen him in anything but a state of equanimity. He always has a very warm and kind of loving vibe, very non-judgmental, very accepting. And he's totally focused on Dhamma. Nothing else interests him. I I try to make conversation with him, and it just fell flat after about a sentence. 
because he, he'll go there to be polite for about one sentence, and then it's just clear he's not interested anymore. He was at the Forest Refuge, and the Burmese donors would come up from New York or Boston to visit with him, and he'd have lunch with them and exchange a couple of pleasantries, and then he'd retire to his room. Because if the conversation wasn't about Dhamma, it didn't interest him. So he, he manifests this complete dedication. He's been uh, in robe since he was 10 years old and just has a complete dedication to his own liberation and the liberation of anyone else who wishes to follow his teaching. So these are some of the powers of a concentrated mind, a still mind, a steady mind, in conjunction with insight. This is the direction that mindfulness of breathing leads in, both the deepening of the stillness and the deepening of insight. In terms of meditation technique, there is no other that the Buddha described in as much detail. So there's this wonderful sutta, again in the Majjhima, called the Anapanasati Sutta, a discourse on mindfulness of in-and-out breathing, where the Buddha describes in detail how this practice unfolds for us as we follow it all the way through. He said that this practice is sufficient to follow all the way through to realization. And in doing so, it covers the other foundations of mindfulness as well. Mindfulness of breathing is is about the body primarily, but as we explore it with some depth and some consistency, it also opens up the other foundations of feeling tone pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, of mind states, or citta, and of the fourth foundation called dhammas, or dharmic principles. The Buddha described the unfolding of, of this practice in 16 separate stages in the sutta, normally organized into four groups, four groups of four. In each one, the meditator is... Uh, experiencing these stages both through breathing in and through breathing out. So I'll leave off the through breathing in and breathing out, and I'll just read you the stages. First group of four, uh, one notices whether the breath is long, one notices if the breath is short, one breathes in experiencing the whole body, and one tranquilizes the bodily formation. So fairly early on, the meditator is using the breath to bring calm into the body. This is one of the first beautiful benefits of breath as a meditation is that it starts to calm the body. The breath is particularly a good uh, object for that because of its rhythmic nature. And I'm sure you felt this you know, for short periods or for long periods, how that very steady in and out activity has a soothing quality to it. And the rhythm can eventually convey that soothing quality to the body, and the body starts to calm down. Whenever I enter a retreat from the outside world from a busy period in life, one of the first things I notice is how kind of busy my body is, that it's stored up tensions and energies and hasn't fully relaxed. And then as the retreat goes on, I kind of feel the body relaxing and letting go of some of that. So the breath begins to bring a calming energy to the body. Next four descriptions. Breathing in and out, experiencing rapture, experiencing pleasure. The commentaries liken this to the second foundation on feeling tone, the pleasant aspect of experience. You might just try this in a sitting See if in breathing in, you can have a sense of that energy of breathing in, sort of picking up the energy throughout the body and of a pleasant quality of that energy. Third of this step, experiencing the mental formations. So early on, this is only seven steps in, the meditation on the breath is leading to looking at the mind. So when we talk about the breath, don't think that you have to hold it separate from knowing what's happening in the mind. They're really meant to be integrated. 
So we can look at the quality of mind that is with the breath. The relationship we create with the breath, is it an aggressive one where we're taking hold too hard? Is it too distant or laid back where we're not connecting enough? Are we finding the right relationship with the breath? Next step, tranquilizing the mental formation. So as the breath calms the body, so also in time it starts to calm the mind. So these two steps of calming the body and calming the mind are important developments through the mindfulness of breath. The fourth tetrads, no, sorry, the third tetrad has four more components, breathing in, experiencing the mind, so knowing clearly what's in the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, and liberating the mind. That's delightful. Liberating the mind, and we're only at step 12. This has a a special meaning in the the text, and that is the mind that's free from hindrances. You might notice this in your practice, that there are moments when the hindrances, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, aren't active. And in those moments, feel that quality of freedom. It may be there a number of times in one sitting. In that moment, the mind is free. It is liberated. Breath leads in that direction. Because of the beautiful qualities that grow out of mindfulness of breath, there can come in easily a striving around these states. I mean, just to think what we've covered so far, tranquility, rapture, pleasure, gladdening, concentrating, liberating. Wow, who wouldn't want that? So notice if there starts to come in a striving element in relationship to the mindfulness of breathing. I'm being mindful so that I can get concentrated. I'm being mindful so that I can get glad. I'm being mindful so that I can feel free. Of course, if we do it from that kind of ulterior motive, it doesn't work. We have to really be with the breath in an innocent kind of way, and we have to see these benefits all as byproducts. That innocent attention leads to all this uh, beautiful result, but we can't force it. So we learn that right effort is just about forming that relationship in the moment with the breath. Not pushing it, not trying to get over it to get into a different next moment. All the beautiful qualities of meditation come out of a moment where we accept it the way it is. Never out of aversion or grasping. This is always the first step, accepting the moment the way it is, then the beautiful qualities come from that. When I sat with uh, Pao Xiaodao the first time I went over to Burma and spent six weeks with him, and uh, a friend of mine was there ahead and knew that I was coming and told Xiaodao that I was coming, and I'm afraid he gave me a little bit of a build-up. He said, oh, this teacher from uh, California is coming. And uh, it'd be good if we can give him a nice kuti. And uh, so they did. I I got a nice kuti when I got there. And Saida went out of his way to welcome me. And I got to see him every day for interviews. And so all of that was very positive. At the same time, I sort of felt like I had a billing that I had to live up to. Because I've I've been practicing for about 30 years now. And I thought I should be somewhere along this path. But Sayadaw's level of the concentration that he's looking for is very, very uh, high. And I, you know, I charged in and I practiced as hard as I could and I made some progress and I was sort of advancing on his ladder and then I just completely plateaued. And I really didn't get near where he would have liked me to get. Uh, did I get into some striving around that? Uh, yeah, I did. I did and had to just deal with it as it came wanting to be there from some other motivation than just being fully in the present. It was an ego thing. So I had to look at that and as far as possible let go. When I was sitting with him again at the forest refuge, I ran into a friend who was coming to sit sometimes during the days. And his friend saw me the other day and he said, well, how did you work with the striving in relation to Sayadaw? And I said, I'd already fallen on my face in Burma. I didn't have to worry about doing it here. So it was actually much easier the second time. 
So we do learn to recognize and work with this striving quality of mind, this gaining mind that wants some experience, special experience from our practice. But the practice really only unfolds when we can take the moment just as it is and be at ease with that. That's freedom. The freedom to find our peace of mind with things just the way they are. So what leads in that direction is the fourth group of stages in relating to the breath. As we breathe in and out, we contemplate impermanence. So you'll start to see that this last four is all about insight or vipassana. Some of the first 12 were were, uh, clearly about concentration, Uh, tranquilizing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, clearly on the side of samatha. These last four are clearly on the side of vipassana. Contemplating fading away. The Pali word is viraga. Uh, Literally means not passion or dispassion. It's a synonym for the unconditioned, for nibbana. Contemplating nibbana as I breathe in. Contemplating nibbana as I breathe out. Not the concept, but the direct experience. Contemplating cessation, or nirodha. And this means a cessation of suffering. This is really the third noble truth. The end of suffering is the end of craving. So we contemplate in our direct experience of breathing in, breathing out, what it feels like when craving ends, even if it's only temporarily. And with the end of craving is the end of suffering. And finally, contemplating relinquishment, or letting go. And what the commentaries say this refers to is letting go of any of the defilements of mind, the torments of mind that Carol mentioned last night. Letting go of greed, letting go of aversion, letting go of delusion, at some point, hopefully, for good, so that those qualities of mind never more visit. This is the final freedom, the direction that the whole path leads to. This great uh, stability of mind where the mind is no longer bothered by self-centered thoughts or confusion in any direction at all. This is really the kind of peace from which love and compassion just come naturally. Love and compassion are already there when the mind isn't preoccupied with self-centered striving. So as the mind settles and is free from these torments, love and compassion come forth naturally, express themselves in many, many different forms of connection and helping, sharing, generosity. This is what the Buddha was uh, teaching the Satipatthana for. This is why the Buddha taught the practice of mindfulness through the understanding of the way things are, as mindfulness comes into contact with objects like the breath, like body, like sounds, like thoughts, like moods, we start to see their specific characteristics, an in-breath, an out-breath, a sound, the quality of fear, the quality of generosity, quality of anxiety, quality of compassion, We see how all these things have their individual nature, but they're all also subject to their universal characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability, and of selflessness. And as mindfulness and wisdom together start to uncover all those characteristics, we find ourselves letting go more and more of any kind of clinging. And it's the letting go of clinging that allows the mind to be released and released finally into a direct realization of the unconditioned. And it's that direct realization that does the work of relinquishment of the defilements. So as the Buddha said toward the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, friends, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, and for the attainment of the true way and the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. 
And the mindfulness of the breath is a complete path in itself that opens up to all the other foundations, beginning with the development of calm and opening into the development of liberating wisdom. Let's just sit for a minute in silence, please. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. So thank you for your attention. It was a pleasure to be with you at the start of this retreat and also in the new hall. It's the first time I've, I've taught in the new hall, so great pleasure. Just one short announcement about interviews. The uh, interviews for the whole group will begin tomorrow. And due to the kind of uh, pers- uh, idiosyncratic nature of this computer system, there was no way to separate out the people who had interviews today from the whole group. The result is that some people who had interviews today, the continuing people, may also be on the list for tomorrow. And then in addition, about half of the new group will be on tomorrow and about half the day after. So please, everybody check the board because anybody could be, uh, your number could be up tomorrow. (laughs) So please check and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.